0: Welcome to Season 3 of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today our guest is Michael Wolfe. He's an accomplished, award-winning, internationally noted pianist, a composer, a band leader, and now an author. His life story is detailed in his recent memoir, On That Note, a memoir of jazz, ticks, and survival. Michael, thanks for joining us here on All That's Jazz.
1: Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Good to see you.
0: So let me start out by saying, you know, the mission, first of all, of our podcast is is and always will be it's a podcast that reads like this this is where you'll hear conversation and the backstory about everything that is jazz but in your case michael i would say the word backstory is all in caps you truly have an amazing story that includes a fascinating childhood and upbringing a rich musical history and career you're a person diagnosed with tourette's syndrome And along the way, you also had a near-death experience with cancer. You're basically someone who is accustomed to surviving the odds. And on that note, let me say that you're one tough Ashkenazi. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You want to explain that for us?
1: Well, I was really sick with cancer for about four or five years. And when I came back to perform which was only about three years ago, performing at a club called Mesro, New York City. It was my first performance back, and it was with bassist Ben Allison, who I still perform with. I didn't know how it was going to go. Anyway, we are playing, and Fred Hirsch is a friend of mine, the pianist, and he came in, and he came there for the first set, and after the first set, he goes, man, you're really sounding, and you know what I've been through, you know? He says, you sounding really strong, man. And, you know, Fred's been, had HIV since the 80s, and he's been through all kind of comas and all kind of, you know, fighting for his health. And I said, how do we do this, Fred? How do we survive? And he says, because we're some tough Ashkenazis, as we are both Ashkenazi Jews. That's where I got that idea. And then I wrote a song. It was on my album called Tough Ashkenazi. You know, going through what I've gone through with this cancer and all that, I realized uh, it made me realize that writing this book and everything that I did have a a strong character, which I never really even thought about. I just lived my life. You know, Mm -hmm. you can be a bird or you can be an ornithologist. I was always the bird, you know, but as I was writing my book, I realized I got to be a bit of an ornithologist, you know, to check out what I was doing. So that's that's how I got to that.
0: Well, you're certainly passionate about everything that you do, especially when it comes to life and when it comes to survival. There, there's no question about it. And I think a lot of it, correct me if I'm wrong, is driven by passion.
1: I think that's a really good way to put it. I mean, it's something inside of me. I always felt like I was a, a realistic optimist, you know, optimistic, realistic about how things were. And I'm not sure that I am always realistic. But in terms of As music, when I was a kid, even, I just dreamed about music. I just lived for music. You know, my dad was a fan of Count Basie and, and, uh, you know, George Shering and Oscar Peterson and Ray Charles and all those people. And he had all these great records. And, uh, you know, 45s at the time, even in the 50s and some albums. And when I would listen to him with him, he would tell me what was going on. Like, hey, they're playing. You know, he was an amateur musician. And I would just dream about being one of these guys like i was inside the record and what was the you know how how did this blind guy george sharing and this other blind guy ray charles how did they even find the piano and how did they do it How, you know it just this whole thing was my life you know so music was it wasn't a question for me of what i was going to do once i was 15 i just decided this is it i'm just going to do music man Luckily, I had good support from my dad and my mom, and uh, it wasn't an intellectual decision. It was totally because I just needed to do it. And I kind of feel it's that way now. I teach it, I'm a professor at NYU, and I teach in the music program. And I feel like if one can be discouraged from doing something like that, you should be discouraged because it's something to do. You have to have this inner drive. And then I found later in my life, once I had was married and had children, and you know that I had a passion for them, I had a passion for that, our family did a, a, a show on Nickelodeon called The Naked Brothers Band that my wife created. My kids started and I played their dad and I had to write the underscore. And we got up every day, you know, six in the morning, and worked all day. And at night we had dinner and went over our lines. And I just I just love doing creative things. I just have a passion for that, whether I'm writing a film score or working with my band. I recently wrote a piece for Jazz panel Trio and String Quartet, which I'll be playing at various venues. And I just, you know, when I get into it, I'm into it.
0: You know, it it's very, I think, reflective of uh, who and what you are in your book, uh, which again is on that note. What made you decide at this point in your life, as accomplished and wonderful and challenging as it's been, uh, why did you decide to sit down and become an author?
1: Well, my father-in-law wrote a, wrote a memoir, kind of, he's a businessman and he was one of the first venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, and then he went on to be the head of the Export-Import Bank and then the Undersecretary General of the United Nations. And he had a really amazing life. And he, at one point, just, we were all together on a Christmas vacation, and he just stayed in his room the whole time and said, what are you doing? Because so I saw him, I'm writing a book. And he wrote it by hand, you know, on a legal pad. And I just saw him keep with it for a year or two. And then he wrote this really good book. It was a lot of stories. And Anyway, I was talking with him one day and he said, you know, when we're at the table hanging, you have these great stories. He goes, you should write a book. Really? Should I write a book? What would I write a book about? So this is about 10 years ago. I started writing a how-to book about being a musician. I wrote a book of, you know, I started writing. I wrote about 100 pages. How to be a sideman, how to be a leader, how to be a conductor, how to be an accompanist, you know, all these kind of things. How to be on the road, you know. And what happened was... When I read over that 100 pages, I felt like Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye, when Holden Caulfield talked about taking a, a speech class, and when someone would be up there giving their speech, if they got off the subject matter, they would all yell, digression, digression, and uh, Holden Caulfield said he liked the digressions best. But well, when I read my my 100 pages, I realized what I liked best about it was the stories that came with these things of how to do it. And I realized, that's what I want to write about. I want to write about the stories. So I threw that out, at least the, the how-to part. I figured, okay, there's a lot of how-to stuff. I mean, and then I just started thinking about it. And I, have a, I've, I had some friends that were authors and a, a really great guy named Da Chin is a Chinese guy who had written a bunch of memoirs. And he told me, he said, you have a story to tell. So I just started sitting down every day at a d- little desk I had by my piano. I put my laptop up there. And I, w- I wouldn't write long periods of time, maybe a half hour, an hour. But I decided I was going gonna to do it every day and see what came up. And I started writing, you know, I didn't write the books in a certain order. I didn't write in that order. I just started writing. Maybe I'll write a chapter about my time with Cannonball Adelaide. Maybe I'll write a time about when I went on the road with Cal Jader. Maybe I'll write a time when I got arrested in Montreal. Maybe I'll write... And then I started writing, well, let me go back and think about how I grew up. And then I started looking at the bigger issues of growing up as a Jewish white person in the South in the 50s and the racism I I saw and then being Jewish and the anti-Semitism and all this weird stuff. And then we moved to Berkeley in 1961, Berkeley, California. And then I became kind of a leftist and anti-war. And I thought, there's a lot to tell here that I'm going to tell my personal story, but my personal story goes through I don't know, it's sort, of, it's sort of like it goes through all these different times, really turbulent times. And so that's that's really what happened. And it took me about two years of writing to where I found my voice as a writer, because I didn't want to just I wanted to be able to write more like I speak with the rhythm of a jazz guy. But it took me a while to figure it out. And, you know, I had some help along the way. Some authors would just there were friends who look at it and just give me ideas. It was an interesting experience and then I got cancer after a couple years so I put it aside for three or four years because I was so sick and I almost died and then I as I was recovering I thought I'm going to get back to it you know and so it was it was a long process and I thought at first well how am I going to remember all this stuff and then when I sat down to write it was like I was there I would be in that moment I'd be talking about my dad you know rocking himself on the rocking chair with a Nine iron in his hand and smoking a cigar and listening to jazz. You know, I could smell it, I could feel it. I was experiencing the feelings I had. It was like being in a movie. So that's how I wrote it, you know. And then I figured out a sort of way to organize it. And then I'd say, oh, you know, maybe I need this, maybe I need that, and work with an editor. But, you know, it was definitely way harder than making an album.
0: It's one of those things where it's hard to put the book down but it showed how music was your destiny. I mean, it truly was through the story. I mean, you know, like when your father brought in the piano when you were age four, he had it shipped to the house and put it in the living room. And then all of a sudden, you at that young tender age started to learn, what, St. Louis blues, I think it was. Uh Uh, And and then all of a sudden, because... uh, Of that uh, and like you mentioned already your dad's interest in jazz music his record collection and how he would listen to music constantly and I, I was especially impressed through the fact that there was this piano in the house you had Tourette's syndrome but yet as you mentioned in the book touching the piano keys soothed you and it relaxed the ticks and the little idiosyncrasies that you had experienced in life. How, how did that work for you? Why do you think it, it was soothing to you?
1: Well, people ask me, what's it like being a person with Tourette's playing the piano? And I said, I've never been a person without Tourette's playing the piano, so I don't know the difference. But I, was, I became really good friends with the neurologist uh, Oliver Sacks, you know, the writer and neurologist and, and who, who did a lot of work with Tourette's and I asked him about it. I said, you know, I, when I play the piano, I I feel impulsive and I think that affects my playing, but I don't feel hung up by my ticks. But if I stand up to walk around and talk, which I do, then I will. And he says, it's energy. It's just energy, you know, it's energy coming and going. And he said, I just tell my patients, let it fly. Don't, because we can try, we would, Tourette's can try for a while. I can make it stop, you know? Yeah. But it's at a cost. I kind of deaden myself, and it comes back stronger. But in terms of the, how the piano did it, I couldn't say why it did it. Tourette's is very sensual. You know, it's like you, I'm very sensitive to, you know, I'm allergic to wool and clothes feel weird on my skin. And, you know, I have synesthesia. So to me, everything has colors. Notes have colors. Keys have colors. Days of the week, months of the year. You know, all these things have colors for me. So it's all kind of in a sensual deal. I wasn't intellectual about my playing, though I did have an intellectual, scholarly approach to harmony in a way. But So it's just something about touching the keys. I think it's the energy. See, if you play a piano, if you play a horn, you got to take a breath, right? Mm -hmm. If you play a bass or a piano or vibes or something, you could just play it like it's a typewriter. (laughs) You never have to stop. So what I had to learn to do was I started doing this. I would sing along with myself. And then I have to take a breath. And so now I don't do that as much. I just know that you can't, I don't want to overplay. So there's a fine line between having energy and all that stuff happening and then realizing I want to make sense out of the music. So it's kind of a, it's a mix. So now if I'm playing with Cal Jader, or I'm playing with Cannonball, or I'm playing with whoever, Nancy Wilson or whoever I would play with now, I'm in their world, right? When they're soloing or they're singing or whatever. So my job is being an accompanist. So it's not about, me it's about them so i have to let them play me see i came up with this theory of on on and i talk about this in the book when i was playing with Cannonball and i was 22 and all of a sudden i imagined on the ceiling a big circle like a pie Mm -hmm. and i could see what er, 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 different instruments were filling up parts of that pie and i realized i can only play where there's an opening for me to play where the piece of the pie there's no piece of the pie there so you can't play over somebody else's piece of the pie. In other words, if I'm playing, I, we got to make it work together. You know, like a like a puzzle. So yeah, I had to learn that. I had to think about that. It's like with when 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 uh, Coltrane was playing in Miles' band, and he would play these long solos, and Miles was getting kind of mad. It's like, okay, that's enough. You know, he says you got to play shorter solos. And Coltrane said, "Well, I don't know how to, how to stop." And Miles said, "Just take the horn out of your mouth." You know, like for me, it's like, just take my hands up, just play. And at a certain point, stop, you know,
0: it seemed that your development was very fast, even to the point where at a young age, even in your early teens, you talk about in the book, how you're in new Orleans and you go to a club and they're looking for a a pianist to jump on the bandstand and play. And all of a sudden you're in the band just Mm -hmm. like that.
1: Well, I was with my cousin (laughs) <laughs> my cousin, Irving Washour, who lives in New Orleans, and he's older than I. And I would always go in the summer because that's where I was. You know, I lived there for a few years of my life and then we lived in Memphis, but all our family was in New Orleans. So I really loved them. So I would just go there and hang with them for a month or two in the summer. And, you know, I loved it. So we once went and they had the Saturday afternoon. I mean, I wasn't old enough to get into a club, you know, because I wasn't I wasn't even 18. I was 15 or 16 but you could go in the afternoon and they had a big band and I was sitting with my cousin. I noticed they weren't starting and there was no piano player. So I think they're waiting for the pianist. Would you, I him, would you go up and see if I could play? And he goes, you think you could do this? I, go, I can do it. You know, I was really cocky. So I went up and they said, all right, kid, we started playing. And I played the whole day and they said, you want to play this summer? I go, yeah. So I got the gig, you know, just by doing that. And uh, that was my first time really playing with a big band pro band it was a big band and it was reading these charts and you know it was awesome man and uh you know i'd, I'd be comping playing for them and then it was my time to play a solo i played solo and they were very supportive guys and nobody said anything about my tourettes i was always really ashamed ashamed of it and shy of about it but they didn't uh mention it maybe i wasn't doing it on the bandstand i don't know but they just accepted me and that's what happened as i got older in my teen late teens and i realized this jazz world, and this was in this the, uh, that was the 60s, late 60s and into the 70s. The jazz world was a subculture where I could fit in because I wasn't the normal kind of person. But, you know, it was a lot of African-Americans. There were people that were drug addicts. There you know, all kind of people with problems. But if you could play, you could play. And you were pretty much accepted. You know, I didn't feel a lot of judgment. Mm-hmm. So... I really gravitated to those musicians and to that music. That was part of why I loved it so much. The other reason being, I found when I was a young teenager that if I played the piano and I was, a girl was around, she might sit next to me on the bench, you know? There and you I go. Said, no, I really don't want to practice, you know? <laughs> and that I heard an interview of John Lennon, Tom Snyder on the tomorrow show said, well, why did you get into music? He said for the bids, Tom, for the bids, you know? So, I mean, Let's face it, all, all of us get into music for that, too. You know, that was one of the reasons.
0: Is there one particular either artist or influence that made you the player that you are today? I know you had experience with Cannonball Adderley, with Cal Jader. You were strongly influenced by Bill Evans. Who got you where you are today, or what got you where you are?
1: Well, you know, when I came up, there was no, there were no really know jazz books. It was This guy, John Mahegan, wrote cool stuff, but it was really hard to follow for me. And um, so I had to do it kind of ad hoc, you know. I had some good teachers, but, you know, I just liked who I liked. And I tried to listen to every single thing I could listen to, whether it was record or in person. Like if any jazz musician came around to the Bay Area, i tried try to get my dad to take him, me to it, whether it was Teddy Wilson or... Oscar Peterson or Bill Evans or whatever it was and whoever it was. And then all the local musicians, it was a lot of people that shaped me, you know, a lot of people, Mm -hmm. a lot of people. And I think my, if I had to say one person, it was my father because he's the one that loved it so much. It meant so much to him. And he actually, when we would listen to Count Basie or something, he would explain, we listened to this tune Segway and C. you know, he would explain, Oh, here's the first part. Here's the second part. And my dad, when I was young, was an internist. He became a psychiatrist, and he told me that the most important thing he found in medicine for him was listening to the people. And he could, most people, he could diagnose what was wrong with them by talking with them. He said, you know, if you think about, he said, I thought a lot about what's underneath people. Just like with a big band, he says most people listen to the count bassie big band, they hear the trumpets and the saxophones, but what's really happening is the bass and the drums. You know, the rhythm section, the piano—that's what drives the band. That's what's underneath those bright, shiny things. And he says, when you talk to people, they're going to tell you the same lies they're telling themselves. You got to hear what's underneath it, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's how I approached music. You know, I wasn't a guy that wrote out solos. You know, a lot of people would do transcriptions and and I was kind of copying them, but I would mostly try to figure out their feeling. If I listened, say, to Chick Korea, who I love, I would go, well, who did Chick Korea? What can I hear in his playing? Oh, I hear McCoy Tyner. I hear Bill Evans. I hear Spanish music by, you know, Rodrigo. or hear Ravel. That's how I would do it. Be like, be a detective. And then I'd go listen to that music and I would just let it kind of come through me. That's, that's my approach.
0: It's really an amazing thing that, that has shaped you. Obviously you've had such a, a wonderful career uh, in this business and a number of notable things. Uh, you worked with Nancy Wilson for a while. That led to an association with Arsenio Hall right. because the two of them were friends and then the three of you became friends and on and on. He was our
1: opening act. Yeah, he was our opening act on the road.
0: Right, and and that's how you got sure. to meet him. Sure. But then people yeah. saw you and it's like, hey, this guys uh, he's the real deal. Let's uh, get him involved over here.
1: Yeah, it was great, Arsenio. When he was opening for Nancy Wilson, we were really good friends on the road. We hung out together because I loved comedy then. I hadn't done; I did stand up, you know. Later, so he said, "One day I'm going to have a talk show, and you're going to write my theme." I went, "Okay." He called me when he was doing his talk show, and at the first he said, "I want to get an all women group," and I said, "That sounds great. I'll help you." And then he called back and said, "I think I want you to do it." I said, I don't want to come to L.A., man. I'm living in New York. He goes, Well, there's no reason to be in New York. There's no reason to be in New York. It's if you're going to be a, a male model or a theater actor. So well, I'm not doing any of those. <laughs> so I went out to L.A. and I met with him one day. I had no money. I got a rent a wreck, you know. Went to which was just like five bucks a day. A car. Went to Paramount and met him and his producer and met with them and that was it. You know, got the gig.
0: And. That's also, I, wasn't, I don't know if it was Arsenio Hall or if it was the Nancy Wilson program where you met your wife, Polly.
1: Arsenio Hall. Arsenio she was on the show 30-something, one of the stars of that. And well, I did stand-up for five years in New York right before Arsenio, and I used to do the improv, which was a great club on, on 44th and 9th. And I'd usually do a nine fifteen set, pretty early set, you know, because it was music and comedy. And then I could go sit at the bar and get free beers. So I would sit at the bar for a few hours and they always had a TV at the bar. They always had it on ABC and I would watch 30 something. And I loved this husky voiced brunette with long legs, Polly Draper. And I just loved her from afar, you know. And then when I got on our city hall show after about six months, you know, they would have a a board in the producer's room and I would check out I was going to be there because, you know, I had to figure out if we're going to do music with them or if I was going to write certain music for them to walk on. And I saw Polly Draper, and I thought, God, i got to meet Polly Draper. And I did. She was in the – we just coincidentally were getting our hair done, and we both had really long hair and curly hair, you know, 80s hair. And uh, then I just uh, didn't ask her out. I was too shy. And then I – later on, uh, I asked the producer, well, can I get in touch with her, you know? He gave me her her agent's number, and that guy, I never heard from her. So I snuck the uh, piece of paper where – the limo had picked her up, and I saw she lived right near me. So I dropped off 101 Roses, you know, 1999 from this place. And uh, a note, and she never answered it. And I went by in a week, and they were sitting there dead. So I got another and another. And finally, she called me, said, who are you? I said, you know, I was on the Arsenio show. She goes, oh, I thought you were a guy I met at the dog park. <laughs> goes, I, was, I was in a Canada doing a movie. So I said, well, can I take you out? She goes, yeah, okay. I took her out. I had a gig, actually. Of playing a benefit for PETA and she came to that. And then we just started going out. I just knew she was the one for me, you know?
0: Well, it also led to another collaboration where you ended up scoring a movie because of her.
1: Yeah. She wrote a movie based on my situation with Tourette's. She wrote a movie called the tick code about a 12 year old boy with Tourette's syndrome was a jazz pianist. And his idol was played by Gregory Hines. Who plays a jazz sax player with Tourette's and Polly played the, uh, the kid's mom who has a a relationship with Gregory and I did that score and that not only did I get to do the score but it turned me on to the Tourette Cinema Association because I had really been ashamed of my Tourette's and I had this totally wrong notion that I could hide hide it from people but they all knew I had they didn't know what I had and I didn't know what I didn't know what it has I was diagnosed later but she wrote this thing and uh the people from the Tourette Syndrome Association came down. They said, well, why aren't you helping people out and open about it? I go, well, I was always embarrassed. And I said, well, you got to do something. So I got involved with that organization. And I ended up being chairman of the board at one point. And I really had to open up about it and, you know, created a caucus in Congress and did a lot of stuff. And that was a great experience. And that was all because of Polly doing that movie. And then she did a TV show called The Naked Brothers Band that she wrote and created for our sons to star in because they were musicians and they were songwriters at really young age like my son nat at six started writing great songs so they wanted my nat used to put a sign on his door i want to be a child actor a.k.t.o.r and he wasn't going to be a speller so but polly said no you're not going to be an actor i'm not going to have you do auditions and get rejected and and so she just did a little fun thing she said i know she noticed that the at the uh at the birthday parties if you had a video the kids used to pretend to be famous you know all the little kids so she said i'm just gonna write a." we love and we loved all the christopher guest movies you know the mock documentaries so she said i'm gonna write a mock documentary about a kid's band that's as famous as the beatles so she just wrote it had a little idea about it and we didn't really have a script but we we're friends with a lot of actors so we were having dinner with julianne moore and her husband one night and I was just telling him this idea, and her husband volunteers her. He says, well, Julie will do it. I said, well, really? Polly said, really? She goes, yeah, well, I'm leaving town. It was on a weekend. She goes, I'm leaving town Thursday. If you can do it before then. So Polly said, we're going to do it. So she got together a crew, got Nat and our, our son Alex and a few of their friends, and just was on the floor writing the script while Julie was there getting made up, and she did the scene. And that's we get this scene with Julianne Moore, and the kids, and that's how she took that scene around to raise money for this movie, The Naked Brothers Band. So that's how it happened.
0: Well, it sounded like life was doing you very well. Uh, and there, really there well. A lot of things uh, just moving. Oh. Uh, you, you had many challenges in your life that you overcame, uh, a lot of different things that shaped you. But then in 2015, life came and slapped you in the face. Tell us about that.
1: Well, I had, uh, uh, I was starting to notice some, some lymph nodes in my groin. And I went to my doctor. I said, What do you think? He goes, I don't think it's anything. You're healthy, you know, you seem fine. But they didn't go away for months and months and months. And they were kind of painful sometimes, you know. And I was playing still. And I just said, Come on, we got to do something about it. So my doctor finally says, okay, I'm going to send you to this oncologist. You should just get it checked out, you know? So I go to this oncologist downtown, Chinatown, you know. He wasn't Chinese, but he was in Chinatown. And he goes, well, you know, he looks at me, examines me, says, you really seem really healthy. And I have a lot of allergies and Tourette's. He goes, I don't think it's anything. Let's just have you take a PET scan. Well, I wasn't worried. So I go back to the next couple of weeks and he goes, okay, well, yeah, we got to find out what kind of cancer you have. I go, wait a minute. I got cancer? He goes, oh yeah, you got cancer. You got some kind of lymphoma. So now we got to figure it out i was like oh you know shocked so i had to go do a biopsy he did a some other tests he said well you have this you have a kind of a what they call indolent non-hodgkin's lymphoma which means it's not very strong it's going to be there we don't treat it till you get sick because it's not really hurting you you know it's just in your system and it's in it's in you know in the it's it's a blood cancer And then when you get sick, we'll be able to knock it back. We won't be able to cure this particular one, but it's a way, you know, it's stage four already. It's everywhere. It's not like tumors you could get rid of. But so I finally got sick within the year and I was really sick. And uh, he started treating me for about a year and I just got sicker and sicker and sicker and just weird, you know, so bad, man. Finally, my wife said, You got to go to Memorial Sloan Kettering. We went there to a lymphoma guy. He goes, I don't know what that is, man. You, you you had the right treatment and it doesn't look like you got lymphoma, but you're really sick. So they do another biopsy. And he was kind of not nice, this guy. She's like, well, What's wrong? And then we, we got back the second time and he sits us down and he gives us, he pushes the Kleenex box towards us. He goes, Now I got to tell you, you have a super rare cancer called histiocytic sarcoma. And this guy was about 70. He goes, I've never seen this uh super rare. Maybe 300 people have had it. I'm going to send you to the rare guy immediately. And that was it. There was no treatment. We looked it up, maybe three to six months to live. So I had been in bed at that point for about eight months. You know, I just thought I was going to die. I really did. And uh, you know, I was on so many drugs, Percocet. I wasn't even high. You know, after the six months of taking it, you don't even get high. You're just spaced. I was up all night with sweats. I mean, it was really sick. You know, I'd lost weight and prednisone made my face fat and I was just could barely it was the worst you could possibly i would just be sitting there crying you know I mean I I'll tell you how bad it was I wouldn't wish, wish it on Trump that's how bad it was oh, so anyway um they were doing this trial at the time where they would do a genomic blood test and I agreed to do that it took about six weeks to come in and in the meantime he treated me with a super strong chemo and I ended up in the hospital almost dead because I got sepsis and pneumonia and I no blood pressure one night and I was in ICU and I was in the hospital three weeks. The very end of this results, because they're looking for a mutation that they could find that caused the cancer. He, This guy finds a mutation that he thinks might have caused it. It's just a shot in the dark. So he does all this research and finds a drug that's already in existence, a tiny little drug called mechanist thats used for people that have metastasized melanoma that works about 30% of the time. He says, hey, I think we can try this. He tried it. I thought nothing's going to happen. And first of all, it was hard to get it from the insurance. It took weeks or a month. You know, it was such a rare thing, and it wasn't for my cancer. But we finally got it. And um, it's a little little kind of brown pill, tiniest pill you ever saw. I took it. After two days, all my symptoms stopped. I went to him. He couldn't believe it. After 10 days, he did the test. I was 80% reduction of tumors. And there was no cancer after a year. I took it for a couple more years. And then he just. Said, I said, how will I know if I'm cured? He goes, you'd have to stop taking the medicine. But it's up to you. I go, I'm stopping. And he said, OK. And after a year or two, he goes, you're cured. It's not coming back. It was a miracle. So he wrote a paper on me in the New England Journal of Medicine, not using my name, but the whole situation. And another company came in and they made a specific drug for this disease. And I recently asked him, I said, well, now when you get people with it, how many can you cure? He goes, we cure everybody now because of you. I remember asking him in the beginning, well, what's the research? He goes, you're the research, man. So I just said, okay, let's research. So going through that changed everything for me. Plus I was so sick and it took a long time, even after that, maybe two years, three years to really come back, you know, from my body, just get all the treatments that really messed me up. I still have chronic stuff, you know, that I'll always have, but. It just made me look at life differently. Music had a different meaning for me. It was really, I realized my family was the most important. It had taken a lot out of my wife who had really done it. My kids, you know, my son Nat was starring in his first big movie where he was a star, Paper Towns, his John Green book movie. And, you know, my uh, son Alex was in high school and it was, a, it was a nightmare. It really took it out of everybody. But I'll be honest, when I was sick, I was not a nice guy. I was just thinking about me. I was very narcissistic. I was in pain. You know, it was just awful. So I realized, wow, that's that's what counts is people, my family. And every day I try to notice some trees or something, you know. But I mean, I'm still in the music. I'm still doing it. But I just have a different view about it.
0: Miracle is right. Uh, and that, that's a wow. I mean, I can't even think of a word to describe that cure. It, it's like when you, in the book where you talk the, the chapter about cancer, where finally everything goes away, like you said, and the doctor's like, High five, high five, high five. Yeah, uh,
1: He would show me his arm when I was, he said, look at this, my hair is up here. He says, this is what I live for. You know, people think doctors are rich. These doctors that work in cancer hospitals are not rich. They, they do okay, but they're not making money. They're doing it because they believe in it, you know? Everyone at, at Memorial Sloan Kettering as a researcher, so they see patients two times a week or three times a week, and the other times they're researching in the lab or whatever they do. You know, it's serious, man. So when you go, for me... I was so lucky I got to a cancer hospital I had all because then I got so many side effects. I got a, a, a fungal infection from, you know, I mean, so many things that I've had to deal with. And uh I've just the I, I mentioned a lot of my doctors and the thank yous because they're so great. I still have to go get procedures to just deal with the effects of the treatment. Because when you're getting treated and they think you're gonna die anyway, they just throw everything at you, which they need to do, but it's it's rough on your body, man.
0: Well, it wasn't your time. Uh, it wasn't
1: my time. That's what I said to my wife when I was in that ICU, and the doctor said, "Do you guys have a DNR?" And she goes, "What's a DNR?" And I was knocked out, and I said, "Resuscitate me," you know. And that's that's how that came about. It made me look at myself and say, "Well, I must have. What's my reason to be here?" I can't say that I know there's a reason, but I realize I'm on borrowed time and really lucky, and I'm still me. I think what I know what's important now to me.
0: Well, and that's what I was just going to say. You now value what's most important to you in yeah. your life. And you've surrounded yourself with those things, those people, and the things that make you tick. No pun intended. <laughs> It's such a fascinating story. I think everybody needs to read this. Everybody needs to know your story. And it's what we're all about, too, and that is telling the backstory. And we have done that truly with you, and you've done it for us. And thank you.
1: Well, thank you. What I've found, a lot of people that have read it said they don't have to be musicians to, to get that feeling out of it about life. Because I do talk about what life is to me and how I feel I view it and I think, uh, I hope that, I hope people will get a positive thing from reading it, you know, because we need to get positive vibes now, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. So even though I went through a lot of stuff, I'm charmed. That's how I look at it. I would charm charmed life.
0: You do indeed. I'm speechless at this point, only because it, it, it's such a compelling story. And you are truly a class act. And I, I'm glad I've had this opportunity to get to know you a little through this particular episode that we're having uh, this conversation. And I, I truly appreciate it.
1: Well, it's my pleasure to speak with you. I'm glad to get it out there. And, uh, and you were a great interviewer. Good questions.
0: Thank you. And I, I think the way to bring this full circle and to a close is the way you close your book. Oh. Uh, and there's a quote in there that says it all. And that's uh, so hang in there, MFers, straight ahead and strive for tone.
1: Yeah. Bebop. That's
0: what it's all about. And thank you so much uh, for your time today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the first episode of Season 3 of All That's Jazz with Michael Wolfe, an acclaimed pianist, composer, bandleader, and now author of his memoir, On That Note. We'd like to thank Ben
1: Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song.
0: And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz.
1: If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.